Uh, so we're looking at Numbers chapter 26. If you could turn to uh, verse 52, we'll just read verses 52 uh, to the end. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Among these the land shall be divided for inheritance according to the number of names. To a large tribe you shall give a large inheritance, and to a small tribe you shall give a small inheritance. Every tribe shall be given its inheritance in proportion to its list. But the land shall be divided by lot according to the names of the tribes of their fathers they shall inherit. Their inheritance shall be divided according to lot between the larger and the smaller. This was the list of the Levites according to their clans of Gershon, the land of the Gershonites, of Kohath, the land of the Kohathites, of Merari, the, land, the clan of the uh, Merarites. These are the clans of Levi, the clans of the Libnites, the clan of the Hebronites, the clan of the Mahalites, the clan of the Mushites, the clan of the Korites, and Kohath was the father of Amram. The name of Amram's wife was Jochebed, the daughter of Levi, who was born to Levi in Egypt. And she bore to Amram, Aaron, and Moses, and Miriam, their sister. And to Aaron were born Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. But Nadab and Abihu died when they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. And those listed were 23,000, every male from a month old and upward. For they were not listed among the people of Israel, because there was no inheritance given to them among the people of Israel. These were those listed by Moses and Eleazar the priest, who listed the people of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. But among those, there was not one of those listed by Moses and Aaron the priests, who had listed the people of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. For the Lord had said of them, They shall die in the wilderness. Not one of them was left, except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. So I'm excited to preach this passage, uh, even though it seems like a really weird passage when we read it. It's something we want to uh, pass over, maybe. We think of all these names, but it's uh, really something that God has used to speak to me this week. I'm excited to share uh, this passage, even though it's uh, something that might seem unusual on the surface. Uh, we all have these phrases that are kind of familiar to us that were taught from a young age, phrases that have some kind of wisdom or perceived wisdom to them. Uh, and some of these can be helpful, like we are taught not to put the cart before the horse. We're taught early to bed, early to rise makes a person uh, healthy, wealthy, and wise. Uh, we're taught things like give him an inch, he'll take a mile. You made your bed, now lie in it. Uh, some of them kind of are weird, uh, like we're told not to look a gift horse in the mouth. I always thought it was kick a gift horse, but apparently it's look a gift horse. And of course, it's talking about being uh, grateful and that kind of thing when someone does something nice for you. But what is a gift horse, and why can't you look at a gift horse? I mean, we have these weird kind of phrases. Some of them have some wisdom to them. Some of them are just kind of silly, but... They're memorable, they're clever, and they're sticky. They just kind of have endured the test of time. Uh, one of the most common ones is don't count your chickens before they're hatched. Uh, this is a phrase that has gone back a long time. 1547 was the first time that this statement is act was actually said or a similar statement was said. It was made by a man named Thomas Howell. He said, counteth not thy chickens that unhatcheth be." And there's an old story that kind of illustrates this fable. Uh, actually, in Aesop's fable, there's a similar variation of the story, but uh, it, there's, it, it's a similar story with different variation. It's about uh, a lady in an old small town, and she was a milkmaid. And each day she would go in and milk the cow and bring the milk, and she would carry a bucket on her head, 
carry the milk into town, and then she would sell the milk and make a living for herself. Well, as she was going into town one day, she had uh, an extraordinary amount of milk that she was carrying. And she thought to herself, oh, the cow has given me more milk today, and I'm going to make some more money. And then she thought to herself, well, perhaps the cow is going to make more milk every day. And with this extra money that I'm going to make, I'm going to buy some chickens. And if I buy some chickens, then the chickens are going to lay eggs, and then the eggs are going to hatch, and then I'm going to have more chickens. And then I can, you know, sell some of the eggs, and I can buy some more chickens. I'll have more and more and more. And I'm already beautiful, I'm already wise, but now I'll be rich. And because I'm rich, all of the young men of the town, all the eligible bachelors will be lining up to marry me. And I'll have my pick of any of them to say which one I want to marry. And she's just kind of going through that line of thinking. And she's just kind of imagining herself saying I do to one of these suitors. And she bows her head and then the milk falls off of her head and spills on the ground. She's counting her chickens before they're hatched. Now we think about this idea and from a human standpoint, from a kind of a practical standpoint, there's some wisdom to it, of course. Uh, the Cambridge Dictionary describes the meaning of this saying this way. Uh, they describe it, you should not make plans that depend on something good happening before you know that it has actually happened. So there's some practical wisdom to that. Like there was a woman in, uh, I think it was the UK or France, and she won the lottery. And she's ecstatic about winning the lottery. So she goes out on this big weekend shopping spree, spends about $5,000 in one weekend. And her family's kind of concerned about her. And uh, she shows the ticket to her family, and they check the number. She has, actually hasn't won. It actually wasn't worth anything. If we get a job or get a pay increase, it's probably not a good idea to go out and just spend all that money before we get it. If we go on on a date, it's probably not a good idea to start sending out and ordering wedding invitations. So from a practical standpoint, there's some wisdom to that statement. But from a spiritual standpoint, I don't think it's true at all. From a spiritual standpoint, I don't think that it's wise at all. I think from a spiritual standpoint, God actually expects us to count our chickens before they hatch. This passage, again, it's a strange passage. You know, we think about census, that all these people would think, you know, we just pass over it. If we're doing our Bible reading, maybe we just pass over a passage like this. But I think it's very important what happens in this passage. So it's a census. They're counting up all the people. And the reason that they're counting up all the people, God commands them to count up all the people, is... Uh, Previous censuses were kind of for the purpose of military organization. All right, let's see how many people we have and where they're going to go in, in, in formation and whatnot. But here, in this passage, it's, they're counting them up for the purpose of the land inheritance. That's the primary reason they're, they're for the census. So that when they get to the promised land, then they can distribute the land to different families, and you know, they, it will be orderly in the way that they do that. But here's the thing about that. They're not in the promised land yet, or at least they haven't taken possession of the promised land. There are Canaanites in the land who occupy the land, and it's a big feat for them to overcome these other nations. So in essence, what they're doing is they're counting their chickens before they hatch. They're preparing for distributing the land that isn't theirs yet. But they believe it's going to be theirs because of what God has told them. 
Today I'd like to look at three truths that are related to the nature of faith that I think are illustrated in this passage as well as other passages of Scripture, and I think they can be really informative for us in living a life of faith as believers. The first truth we learn is that God often gives us promises before He gives us provisions. God often gives us promises before He gives us provisions. God says, this is what I'm going to do. And we're like, okay, how are you going to do that? And he's like, just wait and see. And this is the opposite of the way that, at least from my standpoint, I don't like to operate this way. I like to have the provision first. You know, you think about Jesus in the Gospels and Jesus in the feeding of the 5,000. Remember, there's all these people gathered together, and Jesus is like, I want to feed these people. These people are weary. I, I want to feed them. And what do the disciples do? They count up what they have. They say, we only have a few loaves and a few fish. And that's how we like to operate. It's like, all right, what do I have? What has God given me? And now, because of what God has given me, what can God do with that? But God doesn't operate that way. He's like, here's what I want you to do. And you just wait and see and wait, how, and wait and see how I'm going to provide for you. That's God's pattern throughout the Scripture. He gives us the promise before He gives us the provision. You think about the story of Abraham. God comes to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 2, and He says this to him, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So you have the promise there. I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you. But how is that going to happen? First of all, Abraham doesn't have any children, so how is he going to become a great nation? And Sarah is starting to get advanced in years. Okay, you're calling me to go to another place, to leave everything that I know, to leave my provisions behind. How are you going to provide for me? But God gives him the promise before he shows him how he's going to do it. Remember Moses' story. God appears to him and says, Hey, I want you to lead my people out of Egypt. A few problems with that. Number one, Moses wasn't a very good speaker. Two, the Israelites themselves weren't even listening to Moses. The Israelites weren't listening to him. They weren't, they, they, it wasn't like he had a, a presence among them. And if the Israelites weren't going to listen to him, how was the Pharaoh of Egypt, who had all of this free labor, how, were, how, how was he going to listen to Moses and set the people free? God gives him a promise doesn't give him the provision. You think about Samuel. Samuel comes to the sons of Jesse to anoint a king. And Jesse shows him all of his sons, all these really big, strapping young men, thinking that Samuel's going to anoint one of those kings. And Samuel's like, no, God hasn't chosen any of these people. Is there anybody left? Jesse says, well, there's one, but he's in the field. He's tending the sheep. And then Samuel anoints that king. Only problem with that, he, when he anoints King David, Saul is still on the throne. And Saul is this big, burly man's man, this strong person with the forces of Israel behind him. And so how is David, this young shepherd boy, going to become king? But God gives him the promise before he gives him the provision. Jesus comes up to the brothers Simon and Andrew in the scriptures. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Okay, Jesus, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a fisher of men? And how is, God going, how is Jesus going to take these fishermen, these common, ordinary men, and make them into 
People who would change the world. It's a promise, but not a provision. Maybe you're experiencing difficulties in your life. Maybe one thing snowballs into another. Maybe you're trying to trust God, but things are difficult. You have trouble paying the bills. The kids have been misbehaving. Uh, getting in trouble at school, your marriage is on the rocks, yet you believe all things work together for the good of those who love God. And you believe that promise, but you're having trouble seeing the provision because the provision hasn't arrived yet. Or maybe God is calling you to take some big, bold, scary step of faith. Maybe it's sharing your faith with someone. It's intimidating. Maybe it's a call to change jobs or move or any other matter of things. And you don't know how it's going to work out. You don't know how it's going to happen, but you know God has called you to it. You see the promise, but you don't see the provision. Maybe we feel like we've messed up badly. seems like we keep making the same mistakes over again, and we know that there should be freedom in Christ, but we st still keep struggling with patterns of sin. And we know that Christ has offered that freedom, but freedom is elusive. We know the promise, but we don't see the provision. God gives us promises often before he gives us the provision. There's a lady by the name of Pamela Hoke, and she started a foundation called the Rachel Foundation. And the Rachel Foundation exists to help uh, reunite parents with their estranged children. And when people think about the Rachel Foundation, they often think that it was named after one of her kids, you know, that her daughter was named Rachel, but that wasn't the case. Years ago, she was in a very abusive uh, marriage relationship, and uh, her husband was very psychologically, emotionally, physically abusive. And uh, she was, the, the husband was actually able to kind of turn the kids against her. And, you know, there was all these, you know, weird, terrible things going on. And she was essentially kind of separated from her children and uh, the psychologist, a psychologist basically told her, like, you got to just move on with your life. You can't, you know, hold out hope that you're going to be able to re be reunited with your children. And she had trouble dealing with that, of course. You know, she couldn't imagine her life without her children. And so uh, she kind of questioned what was God doing in her life? Why did God allow this to happen? And... Uh, before she kind of gave up completely, she decided she was going to open her Bible. And I, I don't suggest this is the way that seeks God's will, but sometimes God works through things like this. Uh, but she opens up the Bible, and it opened up to Jeremiah 31.15, which says, A voice is heard in Ramah, Rachel reached, weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted. And so she could identify with that, but she tossed the Bible aside, and she just weeped and weeped and weeped. But she felt like... God was telling her, keep reading, keep reading, open up your Bible again. She didn't, she was kind of hesitant to do that. She thought, I can't do it, I can't keep going. But she opened up her Bible and ironically it turned to the same passage. And she kept reading, she kept reading. And as she read on, it continues, restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from, for, from tears. For the Lord is pleased with the work you will do. Your children will return to their own land. She says, as I re read those words, my life and my future were transformed. At that moment, I claimed those words as God's promise to me. And a new energy was born of hope, filled, and it filled my heart. And I resolved never, ever to give up on loving my children. From that, her life started to change. She began a journey that continues to this day. 
Uh, she was able to win a landmark court case, and she was reunited with her children. And after uh, a number of people got word of that and, and her situation, they started to reach out to her for help with similar situations. And from there, it just kind of snowballed into her helping other people who were in similar situations. But God gave her that promise before he gave her provision. And I love the quote by Martin Luther King Jr. It's one of my favorite quotes about faith. It's faith is taking the first step even when you don't see the whole staircase. God gives us the promise. He says, step forward in faith. And then later we see how he's going to provide for us. And I think the reason that he does that is so that we would exercise faith. See, the gap between the promise and the provision involves faith. God often leaves a gap in time. And uh, God, in his infinite wisdom, he wouldn't have had to do that. He doesn't have to leave a gap. Uh, God could have waited until uh, the Israelites were, had defeated the Canaanites. He could have waited until they were in the promised land. And they're like, all right, here's the land. Count everybody up, divvy it out. God could have waited until the month before Sarah was going to conceive and say, all right, Abraham, I'm going to do something amazing through you. You're going to have a child. You're going to become a great nation. But he doesn't do that. In fact, he waits 25 years. God gives him the promise, and it's not until 25 years later that Sarah actually conceives and has a child, and the promise has started to be fulfilled. And God leaves a gap between the promise and the provision. And I believe that he does that so that it would deepen our relationship with him. Think about two scenarios. First scenario, a man uh, and woman meet in Las Vegas, and uh, 24 hours later they get married. Think about another scenario. Man and woman meet, and they go out on a few dates, and slowly they start to fall in love. They keep dating for about six months, and then the man gets down on one knee, asks the woman to marry him. They spend the next year planning the wedding, and then they have a beautiful wedding before friends and family. Now, you think about those two scenarios. Both of them do the exact same thing. Both of them have the exact same result. They both get married. But which relationship do you think is going to be deeper and more meaningful? It's the second one. Even though there was waiting, even though there was less urgency, because relationships are often built in the waiting. They're built in those moments of waiting. And the same thing is true in our relationship with God. Our relationship with Him is often built in those moments of waiting where we trust in Him. We trust His promises, wait for and look for the ways that He's going to provide. J.I. Packer writes this in his book, Knowing God. Wait on the Lord is a constant refrain in the Psalms, and it is a necessary word, for God often keeps us waiting. He's not in such a hurry as we are, and it is not His way to give more light on the future than than we need for action in the present or to guide us more than one step at a time. When in doubt, do nothing, but continue to wait for God. When action is needed, light will come. See, if God simply provided provisions for us, we might not see a relationship uh, with Him as necessary. We might see Him as kind of a cosmic Santa Claus that just kind of gives us stuff. Because relationships are built not on primarily transactions, they're built on interactions. Relationships aren't built primarily on transactions, they're built on interactions. Think about another scenario. Scenario one, you have an aunt who's very close to you, and she's there for all of your birthdays, 
kids' birthday parties. She was there at your wedding. She's there at graduations. She's there at Christmas, at Easter. You talk to her nearly every day, and you have this really close relationship with her. Scenario two, you have another aunt, and you've never actually met her in person. But each holiday, each event in your life, she sends you a check for $20. Each birthday, each graduation, each Christmas, she sends you a check for $20. Now, which relationship do you think would be stronger? Of course, it'd be the first one because there's that interaction. It's not, relationships aren't built primarily on transactions. They're built on interactions. And God doesn't want us to simply look at him as the kind of the cosmic Santa Claus. All right, give me this, give me this. He wants us to look at him as a father. He wants us to have that close, meaningful, deep relationship with him. The founder of Teen Challenge, David Wilkerson, once said this, Our faith is not meant to get us out of a hard place or change our painful condition. Rather, it's meant to reveal God's faithfulness in the midst of our dire situation. I'll read that again. Our faith is not meant to get us out of a hard place or change our painful condition. Rather, it's meant to reveal God's faithfulness to us in the midst of a dire situation. So God gives us promises before he gives us provision. There's often a gap between the promise and the provision that kind of deepens our relationship with him and deepens our faith. And there's one more truth that we can glean from this passage and other passages of Scripture, and that is that the provision is, is, is as sure as the promise. The provision is as sure as the promise. If God promises it, he will provide the provision. He will provide the way. Now, there's always threats to the promise. When God gives us a promise, there's always things that the enemy, that the world, that the flesh will throw at us to try to derail that promise. But if it's something that God has promised, he will bring it about. He's a God that we can trust. He's described in the scriptures as a refuge, a strong tower or, or, or rock. And we can trust in him because of his character, because he's faithful. Hebrews 10, 23 says this, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. He's faithful. He's a faithful God. That's his character, and he's proved his character again and again and again. We can see it in our own life. Maybe we can look back on times in our life uh, where we didn't know where to turn and how God brought us through those moments. We can also look to the Scriptures. We know he's a faithful God because he came through for Abraham. That when Abraham and, and Sarah were done, uh, done, reproductively speaking, their lives were over, he brought them a child and he made them a great nation. God used Moses who uh, had this speech issue, who wasn't able to gain this following. He used him to lead the people out of Egypt. God raised up a shepherd boy in David to become the greatest king in Israel's history. God used Simon and Andrew, the disciples, to become pillars, rocks of the church. God is faithful to his promises. And if we ever question that, the, way that we, the, the thing that we can look at most clearly is how God has been faithful to all of humanity in the cross. You know, we think about the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, and actually that was a promise that was given to humanity, and it went all the way back to the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve fell into sin and uh, were banished from the Garden of Eden, and even in that curse that God put upon humanity, that they were going to, that the ground was going to be cursed and all these things, 
They're separated from the presence of God. Even amongst that curse, there was a promise that blessing was coming. Genesis 3.15, it's called the Proto-Evangelion. It talks about the seed of the woman crushing the head of the snake, speaking of the gospel, speaking of the cross and resurrection, where Jesus would defeat Satan, defeat sin and death. If we ever question whether we can trust in God, we need only look to the cross where it proves that God is faithful. Romans 8.32 says this, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God promises it, if God is involved, we can count on it. We can even count our chickens before they're hatched. You know, when you think about this, and sometimes... You know, when God brings us somewhere, sometimes we don't see the way out. We don't see how he's going to do what he's going to do. And in those moments, he just says, just, just trust me. Keep fighting. Keep walking forward in faith. There's a story about Henry Ford, and years and years ago, uh, he came up with this idea of a V8 engine. And so he had some of his, you know, design architects draw up some sketches of what this V8 engine would look like. And so he brought the sketches to his engineers, and they looked at it, and they're thinking, he's nuts. He's insane. There's no way this could possibly happen. And they're thinking, uh, how do I delicately tell my boss, who has all this authority, it, it isn't happening? So they tell him that. They're like, this is impossible. We cannot create something like this. He's like, yeah, you can. And I want you to work on it until you figure it out. I don't care how long it takes you just got to figure this out. So they worked on it for six months. They came back to him, same thing. It's impossible. We can't do it. We've tried everything. He says, keep trying. Another six months, nothing. At the end of the year, there's nothing. But he told them, keep trying, keep trying. And finally, they did, they did and were able to discover how to build a V8 engine. See, he had that vision. To other people, it seemed impossible, but he said, just keep going, keep going. You'll figure it out. And I think sometimes God has a vision for our lives, and it it seems impossible. It seems like, how can God provide in this way? How is God going to make this happen? In those moments, he's like, just trust me. Just keep going. Keep walking forward in faith. Keep obeying. Keep staying faithful. And as we do that, we get to see his plan unveiled. Here's the main idea for today to kind of sum up everything that we're talking about here. We can count on the promises of God amidst the uncertainty of life until the plan for God's provision is revealed. We can count on the promises of God amidst the uncertainty of life until the plan for God's provision is revealed. We can trust in God's promises even in uncertainty because God's provision is coming. And we're just waiting for that provision to be revealed to us. And we can throw the full weight of our lives around Christ, knowing that he's faithful, knowing that he's true, knowing that he's a good father who cares about us. So I want to close by reading just a sample of the promises that God gives us as believers in Christ. Now, anything that comes to our mind is, is not a promise of God, but when God speaks something in his word, it's something we can rely on, something that is true. So there's first a promise for our past. It says in the book of uh, Psalm, Psalm 103, it says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from him, from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. That's the promise for us in regards to our past. It doesn't matter where we are. It doesn't matter what we've done in our past. When we come to Christ, we can experience forgiveness. We can experience a clean slate. He takes our sins and puts them as far as the east is from the west. There's a promise for our present. Matthew 6, 25 to 30 says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither snow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your father, heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? That's the promise for today. We don't have to worry. We can rely on our good, perfect Heavenly Father. And then there's a promise for the future. Kind of this, this passage, and John really reminds me of this passage in Numbers. Jesus makes a promise to his disciples. In my Father's house are many rooms. In other words, you're not there yet. You're not in heaven yet, but I'm going to prepare it for you. He says, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, and he will take you, I will take you to be with myself, that where I am, you may be also. You're not in the promised land yet, but you can trust that you'll be there one day. I'm preparing a place for you. So there's a promise for our past, promise for our present, promise for our future. The good news is we can rely on the promises of God. We can rely on them in between the time, between the promise and the provision. God is faithful and his track record proves it again and again. So we started talking about this idea that you can't count your chickens before, you're, before they hatch. And I quoted from the Cambridge Dictionary the meaning of that being you should not make plans that depend on something good happening before you know that it has actually happened. But the truth is we can make those kind of plans. We can make plans that depend on something good happening because we know that if Christ promised it, he will bring it about. Because we can count on the promises of God amidst the uncertainties of life until the plan of God's provision is prevailed. God promises it. He will come through with it. He's proven it again and again and again. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that you are a God faithful and true. You're a refuge that we can run to. We thank you that again and again in our own lives, in the lives of uh, those people we see in Scripture that are examples to us, you've proven yourself faithful. That if you've said something, if you've promised something, you will bring it to pass. That even when we don't see the way out, even when we don't see how you're going to provide, that you come in and show your provision. Lord, as we're living sometimes in between the promise and the provision, in that time of waiting where we know what you've called us to, but we don't know how it's going to work out. We don't know how you're going to make it happen. 
We don't know how you might bring good out of it. Help us to live lives of faith. Help us to use times like that to deepen our relationship with you. Help us in those moments to cry out to you as the loving Heavenly Father that you are. Help us to be reminded of the fact that you are good and your love endures forever. That if we, though we're evil, know how to give good gifts to our children, you being the perfect Heavenly Father, know how to give the perfect gifts to us. God, we love you. We thank you for the greatness of who you are. I'm humbled by your greatness. I'm humbled by your mercy. Humbled by your provision for us. Lord, help us never to forget. Help us to walk forward in faith. Walk forward in obedience. Because you are who you say you are. You're a good, faithful God. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.